Father, again, we celebrate who you are and what you have done. And I pray that we would be re-amazed today at the person and work of Jesus and that you would, by the power of your Spirit, teach us and instruct us as we look into your Word. And may we hear your words, Father, not the words of a man. And would you convict and build up and tear down and bring to life and put to death the things that need to be done. Only you know, and we trust you to do it by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as we have moved through Hebrews, and by the way, yeah, we're not getting close to touching all that this morning. Don't, don't, yeah. You're like, oh, we're going to talk about Melchizedek. Nope, not today. Probably not next week either. Probably a couple weeks off about Melchizedek. But um, we're just going to focus on verses 14 to 16 of chapter 4 today. Um, And let's do a sprint through where we've been so far in the book of Hebrews. Because I have been, over the last couple of weeks specifically, I've been listening to Hebrews specifically as I drove to work. And it is so cohesive. It is so unified in what it's saying. And as we stop and observe certain leaves and trees, we can miss the beauty of this soaring, overarching thing, even where we've been so far, which has been uh, a few months and actually before sabbatical. And uh, so we've, we've been in this some months already. We can forget where we've been and we can lose track of where we're going. But so we started, again, I've said it probably, I don't know, 10 times or so, the amazing beginning there in chapter one, talking about the greatness of Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the heir of all things. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then the writer goes in to talk about Jesus is better than angels. And then he said, it's important that we pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. And he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And he talked about the founder of our salvation and how all things have been put under subjection under the feet of man, but we don't see that yet. But Jesus came in the form of a man so that he could be like us and so that he could understand what we've been through and what we're going through And so that by the grace of God, the writer says, he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting that he would bring many sons to glory and that he would be made perfect through suffering. Then he goes on to say in just what had to be a shocking statement to these Hebrew believers, Jesus is greater than Moses. They're like, greater than Moses? Moses is the man. Moses was the man at the top of the mountain. And, and the writer of Hebrews basically says, yeah, but he was talking to Jesus there. He was talking to God the Father. We're Trinitarian, definitely one God, three persons. Jesus is God. Therefore, Jesus is greater than Moses just in the way that the builder of the house is greater than the house itself. And then we got into this thought pattern, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, about rest. And he talked about how the, the Israelites didn't enter into the rest of God because of their unbelief. And that was the huge statement is that the reason they failed, the reason that they didn't enter the rest was because of their unbelief. And it's so important that we understand that the writer is saying there is a greater covenant than the covenant that they were a part of. And it's based on belief. It's based on faith. And then we moved into chapter 4. And he says, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And I've said several times, these warning passages, which there's many of, aren't there to scare us. They're there to turn our eyes to Jesus so that we can have our fears calmed. Um, And then it remains, Joshua didn't bring them uh, peace or rest. David didn't bring them peace or rest. There remains a Sabbath rest for the children of God, the people of God. And in the same way that God has rested from His works, we are called to rest from our works and be diligent to enter into the rest that He has given us. 
And then last week, we said what's going to divide the believers from the unbelievers is one thing, and that's the Word of God. God will determine that, has determined that, and by revealing Himself since creation, every man is without excuse for not knowing God. And the Word of God, the revelation that we have of God, has made Him clear through general revelation in nature, through specific special revelation in the Bible. God has made Himself known. God has made who He is known. His will, His commands are clear. And His Word will be that which determines who has believed and who has not believed, who enters the rest and who doesn't enter the rest. And also, real quickly, we said that uh, the writer has said that if we have believed in Jesus, we have entered that rest. And therefore, we've rested from our works just as God rested from His. Now, that brings us to today. And it's going to be very, very, very important to understand for a long time going forward, we're going to be talking about Jesus as our high priest. Um, the writer of Hebrews from, from today going for, I don't know when we'll get through all that, but he's going to spend a lot of time going over high priest stuff. Um, and we could wait for that to go in depth, but we definitely need to at least gain an understanding of who and what the high priest was in the Old Testament if we're going to make sense of today's passage, which again is just chapter 4, verses 14 and 16. And it will be helpful as we learn more about the high priest and Jesus' superior feeling of that role going forward. So again, we've already seen Jesus referred to as high priest back in chapter 2 when the writer said, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So there in chapter 2, Jesus as high priest is said to have made propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation being an atoning sacrifice, a receiver of wrath in the place of others. It was finished upon that cross. It is done. It is finished Paid in full, right? That's propitiation. And so then in the Old Testament, we see the high priest, part of his role was to make atonement for sins. But in the Old Testament, he did, the high priest did something different than what Jesus did, even though it was a, a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do. Okay? So... We'll look through just a brief overview from the Old Testament to get what the role of the high priest was there. So God instructed Moses to call Aaron and his sons as priests in the service of the tabernacle, which would lead into the temple once they were in the promised land and build the temple. Now the word priest in the Hebrew language carries with it a thought of working or serving, representing God to the people and the people to God. So a priest was a worker who was a go-between between the people of God and God. The people were unholy and God is holy so they could not just saunter into His presence and worship Him. Hey God, we're here. You're lucky. Check us out. They needed to have their sins removed. They needed reconciled to God in order to approach Him. So these priests did that work. The work of making it possible for sinful man to worship the holy God. And there were intricate descriptions of who the priests were to be, what they were to wear, down to their underwear, literally. How they were to conduct their work from day to day in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, and then ultimately in the temple once it was built. And the family chosen by God to occupy this priestly office was Moses' brother Aaron and Aaron's sons. Exodus 28, 1. Then bring near to you, God says to Moses, Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they're going to meet a tragic end, Eleazar and Ithamar. Now, while Aaron and his sons filled the role of priests, all of them, 
Aaron himself was appointed as the first high priest. Now, again, the, the, the title kind of tells you what's going on there, right? He's the high priest. Their priest, he's the high priest. He's the first among the priests. And the high priest had special roles, R-O-L-E-S, not like bread. They had special roles, the high priest did, that only they were called to. And I found a good, succinct description of the particular roles of the high priests at ChristianStudyLibrary.org. That's not an endorsement. It's just telling you where this information came from, by the way. Get on there and check it out. I'm telling you not to, but I didn't have time to check it all out. So I can't say, yes, check these people out. Um, So five things that the high priest specifically was to do in his role. The high priest presented the sin offering for the nation as the occasion required. Okay, so he presented the offering for the sins of the people. That was number one. Number two, the high priest performed the atoning sacrifice and burnt offering on the great day of atonement once a year, entering the Holy of Holies with the blood from the sacrifice. That's two. Number three, the high priest used the Urim and the Thummim to inform the people of the will of the Lord in matters concerning their nation. So he played holy dice, basically. He rolled the dice to see what God would say because Proverbs tells us that every roll of the dice is controlled by who? God. So God said, here, roll these dice and I'll kind of communicate to you that way. And only the high priest had the Urim and the Thummim. Four, the high priest was an important civil ruler as well as the spiritual head for the nation. And then number five, the high priest supervised the rest of the priests and the entire tabernacle or temple worship. So that's the five main functions of the high priest in the Levitical priesthood. Now again, we'll get much deeper into the high priest's role as Hebrews develops, but this is a good starting point. The high priest was the highest office in the priesthood and really in the whole group of the people of Israel, period, until they decided they wanted a king like other nations. Moses filled a special role in the inauguration of the law, but after Moses was gone, the high priest was the head of both the religious and the civil activities of the people. You can't really overstate how important and influential the high priest was to the people of Israel. Ultimately, the high priest was the fulcrum between the people of God and the God of the people. He alone entered the Holy of Holies to make the atoning sacrifice on the Day of Atonement one day per year on that August annual event. And again, more on, much more on this later in Hebrews. But for now, this will suffice. Now, back to Hebrews 4.14. We read this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, <laughs> wow. I'm not sure we can even try to scrape the surface of this. Knowing that the high priest in the Old Testament times, that the high priest was the one person in the whole nation who could go into the presence of God, and knowing that he did so to make an offering of blood for the sins of the people and his own sins, puts this picture of Jesus in quite a beautiful facet on the diamond of God's plan, doesn't it? Jesus, the Son of God, is our high priest. The true high priest that every previous human high priest was nothing but a whisper or a shadow. What the high priests of history did was only to point to what the eternal high priest was going to do. And as we'll see later in Hebrews, Jesus, the eternal high priest, did what he did, offered what he offered once for all. It wasn't year after year. It wasn't time after time. It wasn't over and over. It was once, and it was sufficient. We sang that this morning. Praise God, it was sufficient what Jesus did once and for all for my sins, for the sins of His people. And remember, the writer of Hebrews has been laboring over the last chapter plus to separate the faithful from the faithless. The faithless heard the message, the good news, but it was useless to them because it was was not united with faith. But here, the writer emphasizes the importance not of trying harder to do better, but rather to exercise the gift of faith given to these believers. He says, since then we have a great high priest, let us hold fast our confession. 
The phrase, let us hold fast, is one Greek word, and it's krateo. And in this context, it means to keep carefully and faithfully, to remain firmly committed to. And what are we to hold fast to? I love this. We're to hold fast to our confession. That word refers to an open avowal of some belief. What we say we believe and then show that we believe it by living it. And what is our confession? That our great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, has passed through the heavens and completed his work. Now we saw that reference back when we saw the sabbatismos, the perpetual rest we are called to fear missing and to strive to enter into. Rest follows completed work, remember? It was finished upon that cross, paid in full, all sufficient, merit now my own. Why? Because Jesus shed his blood, paid the price for my sins, and paid that price to whom? Who did he pay the ransom to? The devil? Heavens no. Jesus paid no ransom to any devil of hell. The payment Jesus made, he made to the Father. The same Father who made the covenant with Abraham and said, as God passed through the pieces of the divided animals, when you break this covenant, I will shed my blood to pay the penalty for your disobedience. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He shed his blood on the cross He died, He was resurrected, then He ascended into heaven where He entered the true Holy of Holies and presented the sacrifice of Himself that God had already shown approval for by raising Jesus from the dead. And there, listen, in the very presence of God, Jesus, the Son of God's blood, was accepted as payment for our sins. Jesus passed through the heavens, not through some fabric veil in some tent or temple. And He passed into the very throne room of God and offered His blood as the ransom for those who would be redeemed. And the Father said, yes. Oh man, it is finished. And oh church... I say, along with the writer of Hebrews, hold fast to that confession. It is that confession and our holding fast to it that ensures our perseverance and our anchoring in the faith that saves those who believe it. And what an incredible confession it is. But that's just the first verse. But wait, there's more. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. (laughs) Now again, the writer of Hebrews is going to zero in on this great high priest and he's literally going to linger on this thought slash truth for a long time, pretty much through chapter 10. Okay, we're in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4. But all through up to the end of chapter 10, with a few diversions here and there, he's going to focus on Jesus as the high priest and what he did. So this is a major theme, if not the major theme of the book of Hebrews. And in this major theme, the writer is going to dismantle the need for the priesthood and the sacrificial system of Judaism. And he starts this zooming in by saying that Jesus, our high priest, the true high priest, is not just off in heaven somewhere like some detached deity that has no idea what his creatures are dealing with. It's completely the opposite, actually. Our first word in this verse is for. So what's that referencing back to? The fact that we are to hold fast our confession in the priestly work of Jesus in heaven. But, again, Jesus passed through the heavens. When? When He ascended from the earth. Jesus, the Son of God, was born as a man, truly God and truly man, lived a 30-plus year life on the earth, then He died, and then He was resurrected before He ascended. And since that is true, 
And that is our confession that we cling to because for we know what Jesus did. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And oh, the joy of this truth. Seated in the heavenlies at the very right hand of God, Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, a full-fledged human being in a human body, feels sympathy for our weaknesses. Sit with that a second. Did y'all see the Disney Hercules, the animated Hercules? What a dolt Zeus was, right? He was an idiot. The head god. Had no regard for human life. That's not our Jesus. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, every word of that is important. And I would point out in saying that and reading that, listen to me, church. Jesus does not feel disgust for us. Jesus does not roll his eyes and huff and puff at us. Oh, he hates our sin for sure. But he took care of that with his blood, right? And knowing our frame, the psalmist says, that we are only dust, knowing that we struggle with sin and weakness and frailty and finiteness and death, Jesus, the human being, is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. It almost feels irreverent to say Jesus the human being. But it's not. He is not ashamed to call us brothers, the writer of Hebrews said. Because he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have the same source, the writer of Hebrews says. And since he did suffer as a human being and learned obedience through suffering, it's fitting that now as he sits in a human body at the right hand of God in the heaven of the of the heavens in the very top of the food chain, so to speak, there in a human body, he knows our frame, he knows our struggle, and he sympathizes with us. The word for sympathize here is the Greek word sympatheo. And it's used two times in the New Testament. Here and later in Hebrews chapter 10. The word carries with it a literal meaning of to suffer along with. (laughs) Strong's defines it as being affected with the same feeling as another to feel for, or to have compassion on. Now again, let's linger here a bit. How does it affect you to know that Jesus, the perfect Son of God, who shed His blood to pay the penalty for your sins, has compassion on you for your weaknesses? Maybe you grew up with an earthly father who had no compassion on you. You don't even know what this looks like. Or your mother browbeat you so much and you knew you could never please her? That's not Jesus. How does that stir up your affections for Him? Because it really should. John Owen also adds this about the word sympathize. Quote, This word also includes the idea of an ability to relieve those who are suffering. So, Owen says, David, in the deep feeling he had about Absalom's death, wished that he had died for him or relieved him from suffering by dying in his place. Where this is not the case, Owen says, there is no sympathy 
In some circumstances, we may not be able to relieve the situation. In some cases, it may not be possible or appropriate for us to give the sucker and help that our compassion urges us on us. But if there is no inclination to do this, to help, there it is not sympathy. End of quote. So, our God is a God of compassion for His people. Our great high priest is a high priest who has compassion for His people. Listen, and He wants to help His people. And He can help His people. Dane Ortland points this out in his book, Gentle and Lowly, that this thought that God wants to help, that God desires to show compassion, he points that out as the basis of God's proclamation in Isaiah 55 that God and His thoughts are not like us in our thoughts. And remember, the context is He loves to show compassion. Look at this. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that God, the Lord, may have compassion on him. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. For, God says... My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And what makes God not like us here? What makes Him different than us? What makes His ways and His thoughts higher than ours? That He has compassion on the repentant and abundantly pardons Him. That's the basis of God's differentness. That's back there at the beginning of the verse. that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts. I show pardon. I show compassion. I'm not like you all. God is compassionate in ways that we never could be. And that's especially true of God the Son, who the writer of Hebrews points out, is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And this, again, is unfathomable. Maybe, just maybe, by the grace of the omnipotent Holy Spirit of God, we can scratch the surface of this thought and respond close to accordingly. Listen, Jesus, during His earthly life, was tempted in every respect as we are. Now, this is one of the... This, we've got to wrangle with this. We need to sit with it. What does it mean? Does that mean that Jesus had besetting sins like envy, gluttony, greed, lust, pride, sloth, and wrath? Poor old Jesus can't help losing his temple, his temper in the temple. He lost his temple, but he did that on purpose. Poor old Jesus, always overindulging at the church potluck. He can't help it. Oh, you know, Jesus had to fight off homosexual desires too. No. And all of those things, no. It is imperative that we understand that Jesus, as God in the flesh, had no sin nature. Amen. Which makes what we're going to celebrate at Advent all the more important. The fact that He was conceived in the womb of a virgin by the Holy Spirit of God Himself. He got the human part from Mary and He got the divine part from God. Truly God, truly man, in the body of a man dwelling the fullness of the Godhead. That makes perfect sense, right? <laughs> That's tough, right? But Jesus, as the Son of God, as God in the flesh, had no sin nature. As man, He dealt with the frailty and limitations of a physical body. But the doctrinal word here is impeccability. If Jesus could have sinned, then He wouldn't have been God. So you're like, well then, was He really tempted then? Well, this verse and others clearly teach that He was fully tempted. But the question is, is it temptation if you can't sin? Donald Guthrie helps us here. Quote, Since we are tempted and we sin and he is tempted and does not sin, how can his temptations be the same as ours? 
Guthrie says, if he has no bias to sin, as we have, is he not by that fact in a privileged position which at once distinguishes his temptation from ours? For a solution to this difficulty, we must note that temptation in itself is not sinful. The idea is rather of exposure to testing or seduction. This is clearly possible, Guthrie says, without sinning. While there may be certainly, while there may certainly be a sense in which the exposure to temptation on the part of Jesus was on a different plane from man's temptations because he was free from the bias of sin, yet in another sense, his own testing was in all respects similar to ours. The experience of Jesus was not confined to the three recorded temptations in the wilderness. It affected the whole of his mission. It is enough to know that he passed through stresses and strains which no other man has ever known. The greater in this case includes the lesser. What are my temptations, even faced with a bias which a sinlessness is not set out for his people as an example, um, so much as an inspiration? Our high priest, Guthrie finishes, is highly experienced in the trials of human life. Now let me try to bring all that together. Jesus suffered and was tempted in ways that we never will be. And he was tempted in all the ways that we are. So his temptation exceeded our temptation. And through it all, he did not sin. I found this helpful too. I quoted John Owen earlier, so I won't quote him again. But I will point out that he says that Jesus, having no internal sin like we do, was still faced with all the external sin that we are faced with. I like that a lot because that really helps to make good sense and sets the stage well. So not having an inclination inside to sin, he still faced all the sin that was out there. So Jesus didn't wrestle in his mind with, uh, I really want to do this, but I'm not going to. That wasn't the wrestling that he did. He saw every temptation and said, I don't want that and passed through it. No internal sin, but therefore not leading to the complete uh, complementing of the external sin with the internal sin. They were never united because there was no internal sin. And knowing that He faced more than we will ever face makes that all the more significant and impressive. And then the writer of Hebrews makes sure that we know that in the midst of whatever weaknesses we may have, no matter what temptation we face, there is nothing we can go through that Jesus has not already overcome and will not both sympathize and or help with. There's nothing that you're going to be tempted with that Jesus says, well, I'm not going there. Good luck. He's tempted in every, he has been tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. So I'll say that again. There is nothing that you can be tempted with or by that Jesus Christ will not both sympathize and or help with. Your great high priest is able to sympathize with your weakness and your great high priest is able and willing to help you when you are tempted every time, all the time. There is nothing outside of his experience or his ability to help. And I pray that that gives us heart as we deal with our weaknesses and our temptations. You ever been ashamed of a temptation that you had? So you didn't take it to God? It's just the opposite. I'm jumping to application. We'll get there. Jesus sees your temptation. He sees your sin. And He has already overcome that temptation. And He has already paid for that sin. Run to Him with it. Which is where our passage ends today. Verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And we can just close the book, right? We're not going to though. So, since Jesus is who He is, 
and has done what he has done and can sympathize with and help us, what should we do then? Oh, how I love the Bible and the God that that Bible shows me. God tells us through his inspired word to run to him. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Man, let us, let's, you and me and us, those of us who know Jesus, the Son of God, as our Savior and our High Priest, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We are called to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Draw near is one Greek word, and it means to make advances to someone, usually with a request, proposal, question, or suggestion. Now, let me suggest to you that you don't make suggestions to God. Okay, let me just... In this case, we come to Jesus requesting something. And we'll get to what that is in a minute. But first, look at where we're to draw near to. Let us then with confidence draw near... To the throne of grace. First, it's a throne. Who sits on the throne? A king does. In this instance, that king is Jesus, right? What's he king of? Yes, is the answer. And how is this throne described here? It's the throne of grace. Now let's go back to the tabernacle and the temple for a second. In the tabernacle and or temple, the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies. And the lid of that Ark, which had golden angels who faced downward with their wings outstretched over it, that lid was called the mercy seat. This is where God was said to dwell, in the invisible God. But again, the people weren't allowed in there. They couldn't just waltz in and check it out. Ooh, check it out. It's the mercy seat. I don't see God. They said he was here. Check, take a selfie with it. Mercy seat. They couldn't do that. Only the high priest, again, once a year, with a blood offering for himself and the people could approach the mercy seat. Only him, once a year. Nobody in the Old Testament, was ever told to draw near to the mercy seat with confidence. Even the high priest in his yearly trek, one one few minutes a year, even he wore bells that made noise when he moved to know that he was still moving. And he had a rope around his ankle just in case he fell dead in the presence of the holy God and they had to drag him out because they weren't going in there themselves. No, they did not and they were not to draw near to God's presence then with or without confidence. But now that Jesus has done what he has done, he bids his people to draw near. Not to a mercy seat, to an invisible God to be terrified, but to the throne of grace. This new covenant that Jesus instituted is based on grace, and grace is unmerited favor. Look at how Paul speaks about the difference in this covenant of grace in Romans 3, 21-26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by... That word keeps coming up, right? By His blood to be received by faith. Now watch. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, I bring this up here to show the bliss of approaching God based on grace now that our sins have been atoned for. Before the sacrifice of Christ, God had passed over sins, Paul says there in Romans 3, showing mercy 
knowing that the atoning work for the sins would be done by the Christ, not a sheep or a goat. But until that sacrifice was completed through the death of Christ, worshipers would only offer those bulls, those goats, those sheep, placing their faith in God's mercy and longing for grace to be free to worship God as recipients of freedom, not fear. Longing for what we have been given freely by God's doing for God's glory and our good. And now as we see in Hebrews, we are called to draw near with confidence, not to go behind a curtain in a building, but to go into the very throne room of God, into God's presence to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of Who is sufficient for these things? Not only can we draw near to God's very throne to find Jesus seated there and us there with Him, by the way, but that's a whole other sermon or ten. Not only do we find Jesus seated there as we draw near to God's very throne, willing and able to show us mercy, which is kindness or goodwill to an afflicted soul, and to find grace, Unmerited favor in our time of need. Draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. In our time of need. Not just a fair weather when things are going good, when I'm a good boy, God likes me mindset. If I do the right thing, God will be on my side. If I give some money at church, I'll get a raise. No. When we are down, when we are wrong or bad, when things are at their worst, come then too. Come then especially. Listen, when I have sinned, there's grace. When I'm weak, There is grace. When I've lost it all and none of it makes sense, there is grace. When I need it most, there is grace upon grace upon grace. A greater grace than my need. A greater grace than my sin. A greater grace than my wildest imaginations. And our great high priest sympathizes with and for us And He is willing and able to show us mercy and to give us the grace that we need in order to deliver and preserve us. And as we saw so many times in our Ephesians study on Wednesday nights, this grace is there by God's design in order to give Him the maximum glory. To the praise of His glorious grace. Oh church, He loves to show us mercy. He loves to give us grace. He is not like us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We are not naturally gracious. But He is. He loves to show us mercy and give us grace. And oh, that we would see our constant need and draw near to His throne of grace in order to receive from Him that which gives Him the glory that He so rightly deserves. To the praise of His glorious grace, draw near with confidence. Church. Now I'm going to give you some homework. I was given homework early in Hebrews and I stopped. I'm going to start again. Leviticus 16 this week. That's your homework. Talks about the role of the high priest and what the high priest does. It'd be good to get familiar with that as we move forward into Hebrews. But Leviticus 16, Leviticus 16 is your homework. Somebody ask later what your homework is, what are you going to say? Leviticus 16. What did Jason say the homework was? Leviticus 16. Okay. So now we're going to turn to application in these last few minutes. What do we do with this? Not the homework. You do that. But what do we do with this message? We'll look at application through four C's. 
There's seven C's in the world. There's four C's in this application. Christ, come, confidence, and confession. We're going to apply this passage through those four C's. Christ, come, confidence, confession. First application point is Christ. And the application is just look at who Jesus is shown to be. There's going to be a lot more of this high priest thought, like I said. Do you know Jesus as your great high priest? Do you know, church, if you are in Christ, Jesus Christ represents you to God and he brings God to you? Do you know that? Because that's really good news. Know him as your true high priest. Look at this. 1 Timothy 2, 5-6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the Virgin Mary. No. Thank God for the Reformation. I'm serious. Thank God for the Reformation. Mary can't do a thing to save you. The saints can't intercede for you. But Jesus did. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Do you know that Jesus is your mediator? That word mediator, by the way. One who intervenes between two, either in order to make or restore peace and friendship or form a compact or for ratifying a covenant. That's what mediators do. And that's what Jesus does for us. He has restored peace with God. He has restored for us friendship with God. He has ratified the covenant that we celebrate every week. He is our mediator. Do you know Jesus as your great high priest? Romans 8, 31 to 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's your great high priest, church. Know Him as such. Jesus is not crying when you do something bad or wrong. Jesus is not mad at you when you sin. Confess that sin. Repent of that sin knowing that your mediator has made, is making, and will ever make intercession for you and make you holy as your Father in Heaven is holy. Perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. That's who He is. That's what He's done. That's what He's doing. Know that Christ, your High Priest. Now, come, C-O-M-E. So what? So come, he says. Not to the front. Come to him. Draw near to him. Bring it all to him. In the passage in Isaiah 55 that we quoted earlier about God being not like us, just before that in Isaiah 55, 1 to 3, Come, God says, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. I ain't got no money. I know. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and, you, and, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, God said, and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Here, that your soul may live, and I will make with you 
an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. It's there. So come, God says. John 7, 37 to 38, on the last day of the feast, the great day Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Come if you're thirsty and drink. Matthew 11, 28-30. Come to me, all who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me from gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You can't know the easiness of the yoke and the lightness of the burden unless you come to Him. And so what I want to say to us this morning, church, those who are believers in Jesus, those who have placed their faith in Him, keep on coming. Every day, all the time with everything. Keep on coming. But, But I've done some bad things. Come to Him with it. I'm thinking some bad thoughts. Come to Him with them. I can't make sense of all this craziness that's going on around. I can't make sense of these situations that I'm going through right now. Come to Him with them. And don't ever stop. Ever. He may not make it make sense. But He's going to help you. He is your help in the midst of it all. But I've lost someone. Come to Him with that. Just come and keep coming. Come and keep coming. And how do we come? Christ come, now confidence. We come confidently. Not, uh-oh. Dad's in a bad mood today. Confidently. Why? Because you're going to figure it out and make everything better and do better and try harder next time. Then I can come confidently. No. Your confidence is in Him. No confidence. Mine. I miss miss everything up that I touch. Because I'm polluted by sin. Even now that I've been redeemed and I've been given the sinlessness of Christ as a gift, I still dwell in this tent that's contaminated with sin. And my best efforts are as filthy rags. But I am confident in His righteousness. I am confident in His finished work. I am confident that He is able to help me, willing to help me, and will help me because of who He is. Our confidence is in him. Proverbs 3. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is, I would say, confidently safe. Put your confidence in Him as you come. Not in your performance, but in His performance. Not in your grace, because you ain't got none, but in the grace that He has promised to give you. Put your confidence in Him. First, 2 Corinthians 3, 4-6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. All sufficient merit now my own as a free gift of the gracious God. Last one of these. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust our confidence is in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall that put their trust in chariots and horses, but we rise and stand upright because our confidence is in Him. He'll say later in Hebrews, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. We come to the coming one with confidence. Christ, come confidence, and finally, confession.
What's your confession? We said before that we're going to have to give an account to God. We're going to have to give a word to God about the word that he's given to us. That's our confession. What is your confession? What will be your declaration of what you have decided to do with these truths today? What is the confession that you hold fast to? Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which, Timothy, you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Watch this. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him. Be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I want to go back and I want to draw. Oh, David said to tell you when I was going to draw something. I want to draw something. This is our confession right here. Jesus Christ is the blessed and only sovereign. Jesus Christ is King of kings. Jesus Christ is Lord of lords. Amen. That's our confession. And I promise you this. He tells us in Philippians 2, one day every knee will bow. One day every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Will your confession be today and forever that Jesus Christ is Lord? Romans 10, 8-13 will be done. Oops, starting then. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, listen, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between... Let's skip something. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is that your confession today? Have you made that confession? Are you making that confession? And will you make that confession until you see him face to face and make it in his presence? Hold fast to that confession. And draw near to God confidently, knowing that he is both able and willing, sympathizing with us to help us in our time of need. Hold fast your confession of the all-sufficient merit of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that as we approach you even now, our great high priest is making intercession for us. And he is willing and able to help us. He is sympathizing with our weaknesses and showing us mercy and giving us grace even now. I do pray, God, that if there is anyone within the sound of my voice that has not made that good confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, forsaking their sins and seeking the freedom and the forgiveness that comes through the blood of Christ given as a perfect sacrifice for payment of those sins, if there be someone who has not put their faith in that Jesus and in that blood, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, they would be awakened to new life, confess their sins, and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And for those of us who have, God, may we continue to draw near, confidently knowing that there is grace and mercy in our time of need. And we praise you for that. Help us to live it out, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Thank <clears throat> you.
To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Oh, okay. Um, Y'all can just stay standing up.